suffering, if you are in pain, that God is not involved. Good news is that God is involved and glory awaits at the end of the pain. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Romans 8, Acceptance, with the second part of this message entitled, I Can Now Accept Suffering covers Romans chapter 8 verses 19 to 23. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a series that uh, we call Romans chapter 8. You can guess where it is in the Bible. Uh, This series is in Romans chapter 8, so there you go. Easy enough. Uh, The chapter, though, is uh, divided into different segments. We spent the first three weeks talking about the first 17 verses that deal with really the overarching subject matter of acceptance. Uh, I don't know how you go into the second, which we're in now, which is on suffering, without understanding acceptance. If not, I think you get a blurred understanding of suffering. There's a reason that in God's providence, he put these 17 verses prior to the ones that we're studying. We're in the second of three weeks on suffering right now, and I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and following. Let me give you a a quick overview of of last week. We're looking at a a series of statements that bring the truth of the text uh, into clarity, and uh, there's a handful of these. We began with the first two, and the first reads as follows. You'll see it in your bulletin as well. For the Christian... There is a direct correlation between suffering and glory. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If you'll see the word suffer and glorified. There is a, there's a connection between these two. There's, there's a correlation. They do fit together. And we worked through 16 and 17a and, uh, in our last series, but now we see this word suffering come in, and it's going to lead us into an entire teaching from God's Word on the subject matter of suffering. As we talked about glory, uh, we defined it in detail. Just in summary, it's, uh, it's uh, one of three types of glory you see in Scripture. This is the glory from God. It's renown, splendor. It's, it's really the highest expression of life satisfaction, this thing called glory. It's what God has promised to give in full to all of his people one day. We talked about the fact that there is always, it seems like forever you see a connection in all of life between this idea of, of suffering and then glory. You see it in sports. You suffer in order to become strong enough that you gain the glory of victory. Uh, You see it in the reality of childbirth, uh, the pain and suffering that goes through the labor in order to get the glory of the child. We see it in the person of Jesus Christ. If you look at his life, boy, he went to the suffering of the cross, and he's the exalted one to whom we give glory. It's all of life everywhere you look. We talked about this thing called the mystical union, Christ in us. We're in Christ. It's a union, an unusual, mystical even, union that we have with him. And in doing so, we've seen over the 17 previous verses, it it starts with this thing called sonship with God. 
And with it comes an inheritance. We'll put it up, inheritance. But notice that thirdly, you find suffering and then glory. And how easy it is for us to try to view life as taking suffering out and say the Christian life is sonship, it's inheritance, it's glory. And never even think about the reality of suffering. And we want to make sure that everyone knew and we need to remind ourselves continuously, suffering, the cause of it is our sin. That's taught clearly in Romans 3. But when we come to Romans 8, we see that, well, we are suffering. We are a fallen, sinful people. But there is a benefit to the suffering. And that is this thing called glory. And we talked about how what this glory does uh, or the suffering does is it reveals to us uh, what we call functional saviors. Oh, if I can have my health. And all of a sudden we suffer and realize, you know what? No. That health is not going to save me. I look for people. I look for opportunity. I look for all these things. And, and they're functional saviors. And all of a sudden when we suffer deeply, they're revealed to say, these are not helping me at all. It drives us to Christ, which gains us the glory, which is what we ultimately do need. We concluded that until Jesus returns, suffering is a primary pathway to glory, and we need to know that. Now let's look at number two. That was just review. Number two, for the Christian, there is an encouraging consolation during times of suffering. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And what we concluded was you can compare the worst of our suffering, our present suffering, the very worst, with the reality of this future glory. And when you do compare the two, this is what happens. This explains the maturity in the Christian faith. What begins is the Christian looks at their suffering different from the world and they say, I can bear this. Just like a mom can bear the horrible pain of labor because of the glory of that child. Uh, okay, it's, it's bearable. But no, 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 it goes further than that. For the Christian, it becomes more than bearable. We all of a sudden, truth begins to play a the role it's designed to play in our Christian experience. And all of a sudden we say, it's not just bearable, it is worthwhile. It's not just something I have to endure and can endure as a Christian. No, this is so, so good that it's, it's actually worthwhile. And then the spiritual pilgrimage goes even further and something happens at the maturity level where the Christian can actually look at it and say, you know what, it is the very cause of my rejoicing many of us know very little of that experience you mean really it causes me to rejoice watch the apostle Paul in his writings in the very worst of his experiences in suffering in prison in Philippi he writes a book that just says rejoice joy joy rejoice joy joy rejoice and you begin to realize this guy's got it. He understands in ways that most of us have never even seen yet, but that's the beauty of our maturity in the faith. And all of a sudden, this incredible advantage comes to us that I can now accept suffering. 
Suffering doesn't have to play the role it has with everybody else. I can see it in a different light. And all of a sudden, as much as we hate suffering, as much as we say, oh, God, please take it away very appropriately. But at the same time, if you choose not to, I know why you're letting it be there. And it is attached to glory. And I do want glory. And therefore, I can say I'll rejoice in it. That's the story of the Christian faith and maturity. And that's where we all want to gain position and time as we keep seeking him more and more and more. Now we come to the third teaching, which is a new one for us. It's we presently live in an age which, in which all creation, including our bodies, have been subjected to futility and enslaved to corruption. Let's read the text. Beginning in verse 19, it says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Note that. It's waiting eagerly for something, whatever it is, the revealing of the sons of God. We'll look at that. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Notice who subjected creation, including us, to futility. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom, and here's this word glory, of the glory of the children of God. Now, at the fall, if you're new to the, to the Bible, the fall is when mankind has now sinned. Adam and Eve, our foreparents, they fall to temptation. And now we in the likeness of our foreparents, we're brought into this world and we are in sin. It's called the fall. And so now we fall and we read here that as a result, all creation, we're talking plants and trees and animals, everybody, everybody falls. In other words, they share man's curse, they share man's tribulation, the good news in time, later, they're going to share man's glory, there's the good news, but the reality is right now, they're sharing this curse and tribulation. The greater teaching of the text is that, and listen to this carefully, suffering should be considered a universal fact of life. It should be. Do you know you could take the word considered out of that statement now that we're in a fallen condition and only because we are and we could read it and say suffering should be a universal fact of life because it's a consequence of our sin. But folks, as Christians, we have to consider this. Do you realize how different this is from the thinking of the world for sure and even most of the church today? I mean, this is a foreign language to many because to be talking about, oh, suffering is something that should be a part of what's going on in our life today. You know, the world around us is saying, hey, why in the world would we be suffering like this? We're saying this isn't right. I shouldn't have to suffer. After all, I'm a pretty good person. I, 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 don't, I don't deserve this kind of treatment from God or whoever. What's wrong with this place? What's wrong with me? Shouldn't be happening. 
And next thing you know, we're just, that's the way we think. And oh my goodness, look what happens as a result of that. Let me tell you, I was a student of that theology because my father, who was far from a theologian, not even a Christian, but you know what he'd tell me? I'd get sick and a little kid and he'd say, I bet I heard this a hundred times in my childhood. I'd get sick and he'd say, son, you're way, you're way too sweet to be sick. I began to think, you know, I am way too sweet to be sick. <laughs> this shouldn't happen to somebody like me, you know, because I am a good kid. And then I watched my grandmother. Now, I, at a young age, I wasn't comparing to the most godly people in the world, but I'll tell you, this is a woman who was always in her scriptures. She had a library that would rival in quality and quantity just about any pastor you could ever meet. When she passed away, I inherited hundreds and hundreds of great books, excellent theology. And I realized as I read her journals as a kid, I'd say, wow, look at her journal. Look at what she's saying. This woman walks with God. And then I watched her for years lying in a bed as an invalid, couldn't do anything, just moaning and groaning and going through suffering and pain. And that theology that I had, it took root deeply. And I'm saying, now you tell me why. It's one thing that I have a little sickness or something like that. But this woman is a godly woman and she shouldn't suffer that way. It just shouldn't happen. That's the way I felt about it. And then I got exposed to the teaching of God's Word, and I realized, no, we've got this all backwards. What we should be saying is, why am I not suffering like she's suffering? Why, why have I not experienced a lot more suffering than I've ever experienced? It's a whole new look at things. But it's got an end to it that is so beautiful that even when we realize it is and it should be, then we can say, no, that's okay. Only because I can compare it to the glory that's to be revealed. And in reality, from the teaching of Scripture, the glory that is being revealed, even because I suffer. How important we get this. Here are the words that are in the text we just read. Futility. It's talking about frustration. It's a frustration. It'd be like a, a boxer. I, I picture this boxer who's maybe the world champion boxer and now has to go into a bout for some reason with his, with his hand, maybe one hand tied behind his back and using only his least effective arm to fight. And he's countering and punching and dodging and trying to get a lick in and here's a, a far inferior boxer who's just pulverizing his face and you go, hey, this shouldn't be. This is frustrating. Well, this is, this is creation. I mean, the reality is that, that they didn't ask for it. Creation did not ask for it. Creation didn't deserve it. So therefore, it uses the term frustrated. It is. It's a frustration. The term slavery to corruption is a cycle. We all see it in life. It doesn't matter what, who, it, it all happens constantly. It's the birth, and then there's growth. There's beauty in that growth. Then there's death, and then there's decomposition. And it's just a cycle. As Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, 
all is vanity. It just, it just kind of keeps, it just happens. That's what, that's what it's all about. It's a law of physics. Everything, I mean everything, is running down. You know, this is a corruption that is both physical and spiritual. It accounts for flawed perception and selfishness. The goals that we have that we're so proud of, we realize how selfish so many of them are. It accounts for poor judgment. It accounts for spiritual confusion. But it also accounts for the things of the physical world that we see, whether it be, whether it be uh, floods, volcanoes that erupt and destroy property and people's lives. You look at earthquakes and accidents, common colds, cancer, death. It includes everything. And thus all creation is subjected to futility and corruption. Let's look at number four. During this present age, God controls who suffers and to what degree they suffer. Yet always, keep this in mind, with a glorious design in mind. Let's look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And we'll stop it at that point. Now notice who it is that subjects all creation to this. And the answer is God. That's interesting. Go to a, a, a funeral of a person who there's no spiritual realities being portrayed and a, uh, maybe a preacher comes in and, and what do you hear him say? Oh, you know what? God had nothing to do with this. I mean, this death, you know, that's, it's not, you know God wouldn't have anything to do with this. God loves so much and God didn't. He would never let this do. And God's scriptures are screaming out saying, hey, no, 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 that's me. Don't, 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 turn, don't try to protect me because you will never see my reputation if you don't see me as I really am. Don't make me into somebody other than who I am. He controls who's sick. He controls who gets healed. He controls who passes away and never is healed. He controls all of that. If you don't believe it, you just start reading Scripture with open eyes. I could show you literally 40 passages that God takes full ownership. I'll just show you a couple of them. And I didn't pick the, oh, these are the two. I just picked two. I mean, I could pick any one of them. I have a whole list of them. But look at, uh, at first of all, Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, that'll counter a lot of people's theology. Oh, God would never have anything to do with somebody being blind. And he says, who do you think is responsible in terms of has authority over this? Because we're going to ask the question, what about the devil? We've got to ask that. But let me show you one other verse. Let me look also at Deuteronomy 22, 39. See now that I, I am he, there's no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There's no one who can deliver from my hand. Well, what about Satan? If you know the story of Job, 
Here we find Satan appearing before God and, and asking permission that he could do things to Job. And, and God says, this is what you can do. And this is what you can't do. And it gives him very specific direction there. We see in verse 7, and then a few verses after that, it says, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That is painful suffering. And God is the one who said, yes. It could not happen without God's permission. Then it says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And you know you have to read there from God. And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Oh, Satan has his role, no doubt. I, I journaled these thoughts a while back. All of Satan's attempts to take down the godly are turned by God's providence into occasions for God to fulfill his own glorious design. So I, I want to make sure that we as a, the Christian community and you that are seekers trying to figure out the Christian faith, I, I hope you'll kind of make sure that you understand this. God's great goal for us as Christians is not to heal us of our infirmities and sufferings. His great goal is to make us holy. His great goal is to show us our functional saviors. His goal is to drive us to his son so that we receive glory which satisfies as a father wants to see every child satisfied. See, when we get angry with God, you know what we're really doing is we're really denying that his love is, is good enough, that he's not sufficient. We have, to have, we have to have things different than they are, even with Christ. We have to have something different to be satisfied. It's not true. And, and we don't find the glory that God wants to increase in us, an ever-increasing glory. He wants that for us. Therefore, what we're doing when we're angry is we're saying, I'm not really sure I agree with God's word in Psalm 119, 71 and 75, where it says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Wow. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Not the way most would think. It takes us to number five, and it's going to lead us into the question, what about healing? Which got to be addressed. Let's look at number five first, though. There is a time coming when believers, as well as all of creation, will be both physically and spiritually set free from their futility and corruption. Uh, verses 19 Read it first. It says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. And here's that term, the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 21 following, it says, for the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Now here is the word freedom that's used. It's described by the 
Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God that I read. In verse 21, our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. Do you know what that refers to? That's glorification. Young in the Bible, glorification is a term used to refer to when Jesus comes back and all is made perfect and we get full glory. We're glorified, as we say. Full renown full splendor, full satisfaction. I like the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. Referring to this time, he says, creation is passing through a slender, thorny tube, having known the joy of freedom before, but now it is being squeezed into this restricted, rigid period of time, and one day yet to come, it will gush forth free again. This is the time when these scriptures that I'm going to read, as you just listen, this is that time we're referring to. In Philippians 3, our bodies will be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. 1 Corinthians 15, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. Revelation 2.14, Every tear will be wiped away. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Second Peter 3, the present heavens and earth will be purged with fire, revealing a new heaven and a new earth. That's right here on this earth for eternity. Made new, perfect. No tears, nothing. All creation eagerly waits for that. Now, as I conclude, I, we have to address the question of healing. It's such a big part of church today, you know, in terms of, hey, we want to pray for healing and healing and healing. It is so appropriate to do so. Here's the question. Is God in the, in the midst of healing now during this time of corruption? Absolutely he is. Don't think for a moment that he is not healing. Oh, he's healing. You ever wonder why he didn't heal everybody? Jesus didn't when, when he was on earth. He healed some, but he didn't heal everybody. We know that. You see, it was, it's contrary to what the Jewish people thought and probably what many people today in the church confused are thinking. You see, when Jesus came... It was not the consummation of all things. It's, it wasn't the end. It, it wasn't at all. It, it, it was not for the full redemption of the sinful world. Rather, when he came, he came to purchase his people. And then when he did that, what we have to know, it's like this Jewish fellow I was talking to one time and we were debating and, and I said, man, we're going to have to agree to disagree because you think there's, you think there's one mountaintop and and I, I'm convinced the Bible teaches there's two mountaintops. And, and you're, you see Messiah, he's supposed to come. And when he comes, man, there's not going to be the lion and the lamb are going to sleep together, meaning perfect peace on earth and so forth. And you say, okay, that could have been Messiah. He came and there's no perfect peace. But you see, there's two comings. That's the difference. You've got to understand. And a lot of Christians are 
kind of melting those two together and kind of like, well, I think because he came now, that means that he wants everybody to be healed. And if we just have faith and we just believe, then we can be healed and we will be healed. It's up to us to do what God tells us to do and then it happens. And healing should be the norm. Folks, it is not the norm. It is, in fact, not the norm to the degree we'd say it's just a foretaste, but it is a real foretaste. And he says, yes, I'll heal. I want you to get the glimpse of what's to come. And I'm going to show evidences. You're going to see. It's going to, it's going to remind you of the full package that's to come, but you've got to know this. It is not the norm, but we should be asking and seeking for it. So weeks ago, not thinking in alignment with this series, our staff started contemplating, why don't we put together a night of worship? Let's make it a special, I mean really special night. In fact, I would encourage you, it's next week, it's going to be 6 to 8 o'clock right here. And I don't know how many of you came to our 40th anniversary, but if you want to know what will music be like, you're going to get a glimpse. That's the type of thing. Uh, go online. Go to perimeter.org slash night of worship and kind of see the song list that we're using. And we're talking about what a glorious night this is going to be for this church to come together and worship like this for an extended period of time. It's going to be beautiful. And I'm sitting in the meeting and I go, hey, why don't we also make it a night of healing? I mean, we got people suffering in this church immensely and you know God wants to heal some of these people. I'm not saying he's going to heal everybody. Of course not. That's his call. But we need to ask him. And people who want to be prayed for, let them be prayed for. We're going to take a 10 or 15 minute period of the time that I'm going to lead it and just say, hey, let's ask God to heal. Let's see what he does. He's healed in this church plenty in the past. We have not sometimes because we ask not. I encourage you to come to this. But hear this. Your and my salvation is not finished. It does get better. The best, in fact, is yet to come. You know, I, uh, I said this yes, last week in closing. I'm going to say it again. And that is that if there's anything that I could have my grandkids after coming to faith, assuming they will come to faith, I want them to get this truth. I want them to understand the truth. I shared it last week. I'll put it up again. Please hear this. Life's greatest problems are not so much caused by our tragic circumstances as by our improper response to those circumstances. So very important to know. And the root cause of why we, why we look at our circumstances the way we do is we do not understand the acceptance of verses 1 through 17 based on unconditional love of God Romans 8 is saying you matter to me and no suffering should make you think differently that gives us an opportunity to kind of blend this into our hearts through the table and so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you now to do this for one moment I want you to bow with me and the table will be prepared and the, and the elders can sit back after the table is just prepared. 
And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few words about communion. But I want to just pause for one thirty second as the table's being prepared. And I want to pray for all of us right now. Let's bow. A gracious Father, we're just, we're just children that, that struggle to understand your truth and to apply it. Not a one of us here, Father, would say that we admire the way we live. But we thank you that even though we don't, you admire who we are in your son, Jesus. And that therefore you pass right by that and you call us to come feast with you at your table. Father, this is the highest honor we could ever have to eat with you. And then to realize what we eat is you. And so we pray that this would be a very supernatural moment in our experiences. That we might see you, that we might enjoy you, we might love you, even because we've taken this table. And love you so much that we would find ourselves saying we rejoice even in our suffering. So God, would you prepare our hearts now to that end? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this table, what is it? You understand, most of you do, that this took place just before Jesus would be crucified. This was a meal that he invited his apostles to, the disciples. And just so you understand, what he was doing was saying, I'm giving you a picture. What he's saying is, I know you're going to say you'll never forget me, but I'm about to die. And you're not going to see me. I mean, with your sight, you're not going to see me for quite a while. You're going to go through a lot in that quite a while. And I know you'll say you remember me, but you know what? You really won't. Not the way I want you to remember me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little picture. It's a little photo of me. Men, put it in your wallets. Ladies, put it in your purse. And I don't want there to be any rigid when and all. Not every week, every day, every month. No. But as oft as you will. His very words. As oft as you will. Take that picture and stare at it. And when you stare at it, you're going to see different things. You're going to see me every time. But you're going to see something a little different. And it's going to bring back this when we were together. And when I said this and how I promised that. And you're going to, that's going to mean a whole lot to you in your particular situation and time. And so I want it to be a picture. And all I'm going to ask you to do is pull it out and stare at it. You see, what he gave us here is a picture that serves as a remembrance. And so the text, I'll put it up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance. And so this will not be meaningful if we don't use it to remember him. And particularly in his death, 
This is what this tray, rep- uh, the, 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 the tray that we're offering you represents, the bread, his body, is his life, his blood, his death. This is him. This is not literally him. It's not going to turn into real body and real flesh and real blood, but, but it is real because it's, it's him and his presence is real with us. And so it is a remembrance. So I would encourage you just as you are waiting to take, as you take it, after you take it, try to remember the cross. Remember what he's done for us. He died for us. And as you do so, relive the anguish. Realize where you're standing there watching him do this. Your heart would break because you'd say, it's my sin that put you there. And so let it, whatever happens, let it happen. But relive the anguish. Don't just make it a fact. Let it, let it be real. It's, it's personalized because it's your and my sin. But it also serves as a proclamation. Look at verse 26. The next verse says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's not that we're shouting, proclaiming to people who aren't here or something, or to those who are here. It's a proclamation in our heart. It's a proclaiming, yes, Jesus, you are the everything I need. That your glory is everything. Therefore, I'm going for your glory. That's all it is. And so during this time, at the very end when we pray, I'm going to lead you in recommitting our vows, if you'd be so willing to do so, just like a marriage where we recommit vows. But it's also attached with a warning. Though I won't read the last verses. Four or five verses later, uh, continuing, it just simply says, hey, look, don't come and eat and drink in an unworthy manner. If you do, uh, we really do destruction to ourselves. And many are sick. Some even have died, he says, because they took it wrongly, meaning you really want to offend the Lord then take the picture and make fun of the picture. Make light of the picture. Abuse the picture. No, he says, don't do that. So he'd say to the seeker community, this is, this is for my family, those that are part of my church, who are truly members of the body of Christ at some place, and have to be here. And say, so, this, is, this is for my people. But even among my people, he says, there are going to be some of you that are in a place and it grieves me, but you're at a place that I love you to death even as you do this, but you're fighting me so hard and you're just saying, no, no, I won't give in, I won't give in. If you were just saying, I won't, period, don't come take the table. But if at the same time you're saying, oh man, I'm struggling, but I'm, yes, Lord, that's what I, very intention, what I'm planning to do, what I want to do, I'm, uh, help me, God, give me strength. Well, we're the ones that need to be here because we need this strength and this is a faith builder in our lives. And so with that, we're going to be invited to the table right now. You know if you should come and take or not. I'll invite you whenever you choose. I like to do it earlier than later as I, as I receive the, the cup. I want to take the bread just to start the, the very physical senses of taste. God uses those senses, the smell, the sight. But hold the cup. We're going to take it as a sign of our unity together as we will take it at the very, very end. But there'll be a few minutes in between when you're waiting or after you've gotten the cups that I'm going to invite you, if you will, to labor before the Lord trying to stare at a picture. And as your mind drifts, don't beat yourself up. Say, okay, God, let me get back to the cross. Let me get back to the picture of what you've done and, and you've done it for me. And just tell him that you love him or thank you or whatever you like to say. 
But let this be a sweet, sweet time of fellowship with your God. So now, let's pray. And let's once again prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, we bow before you now and invite you to meet with us. May we see you in a special way. And if you want to use this time to heal some of us, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever way, we ask you to do it. But Lord, just meet us and let us accept what we see in that picture. And may we fall more in love with you because we've been here. Grant it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord first broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So take the bread when you're ready and enjoy this time of fellowship with him. The Lord said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take it and then let's pray once again. Father, even as we take this now, we, we want to renew our covenant with you and just say, Lord, it is our pledge of intention. No guarantees we know, but it is the intention of our heart to follow you. And this week to hear your word talk to you, to renew our fellowship with you and to tell others even about you as opportunity comes up. We just want to follow you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for dying for us that we can be here now. And we thank you in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.